Welcome to episode 103 of the ASC podcast with John Gailey for May 5th, 2020. Recording live from our studios in Spencerport, New York. This is Susan Cronkite, Chief Researcher for the ASC podcast with John Gailey and Senior Nurse Consultant for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. The ASC podcast is sponsored by Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, Surgical Information Systems, Encompass Healthcare Data Solutions, BHG Patient Lending, Medicus IT, and our newest sponsor, Intelair. For more information about our sponsors, please visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. Joining me from our studio in Spencerport is John Gailey, recognized as one of the nation's leading experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. And our other panelists from Cape Cod, Massachusetts, Lori Rodericks, Director of Clinical Services for AHS. From Rochester, New York, Alex Borneman, Director of Operations for AHS. Also from Rochester, Judy D'Ambrosio, Director of Educational Services for AHS. And from Rochester, Jenna Alvarez, Senior Nurse Consultant for AHS. And Atlanta, Georgia, Zach Kalaritis, Financial Consultant for AHS. Uh, and so, first of all, we probably should correct this is episode 104. <laughs> I didn't know how to interrupt answer. you. <laughs> episode 104. Oops. Oh, well, not a big deal, I guess. Just so I hope so everybody fast. is faring well. I, uh, um, I hope everybody can see our new uh, beautiful graphics if you're watching us on YouTube. Uh, we've... We, we, we have a green screen behind us, so there's no, no longer looks pretty if we turn off the, uh, <laughs> the green screen effect. Uh, but at least we have these nice graphics up there. And this new studio, I'm, I'm not going to turn on the thing because it embarrasses Sue every time I show how the studio looks. But we do have uh, new monitors in here. We keep buying more and more equipment, new cameras. New cameras coming in uh, on Saturday that will allow us to zoom in so you can see... I know. I don't know well, what we want to see. If you want to get a closer but, view of our faces, I don't no. know. But yeah, we're having a lot of fun with the equipment here. Certainly, uh, making a big investment in in the conferences and uh, these things. Sue, uh, I know everybody is anxious. Probably the most important part about this whole uh, podcast is a puppy update. So I don't know. Nothing big and new. She's growing bigger. <laughs> everybody, the sees her on her morning Zoom session. Said so she's looking less puppyish. Yeah. Um, but she's doing good. She's she's, she's, she's yeah very she's sweet. she's definitely a very sweet puppy, and we love having her. It's a great joy right now. But uh, we posted on Facebook a video of her attacking one of her toys. Yeah, that she was it's quite a quite a uh, vicious sweet. toy that she has there. <laughs> I can see. Yeah. But um, it's very cute. Any, anybody want to share anything that's going on among our staff? I guess not. <laughs> I leave Everybody's, these sections in the script for yeah. people to just chime in. And it's so hard to say. You're supposed to read those? <laughs> you know. Quarantined. I know. I know. I think we're just, uh, somebody was saying oh, on the New York State good. meeting today how fatigued we're all getting that this is just, you know, um, <clears throat> it's just getting very wearing on all of us, I think. I don't, I don't know about anybody else. I'm just not getting enough sleep at night. And, uh, you know, it's not that I'm not tired certainly it's just that i think we're just tired of this mm-hmm. you know to that end uh we are uh, we're located in new york state and uh new york state has been on pause i don't remember what those letters stand for but basically it means that we're supposed to stay home uh only totally essential people are allowed to go to work uh and the governor has announced that it will end on may 15th but as jenna keeps reminding me um, we don't really know what that means because we don't completely understand 
how how pause affects each of us in our mm-hmm. communities. So, and I don't think they know for sure yet either. Yeah. We're just watching the numbers. So we have tentatively set a date to uh, get on the road again on May 18th, but I don't think any of us really believes that that's going to happen here. It would be nice to uh, you know, start getting out and, uh, and and getting things moving again. We have a lot of uh, we have a lot of projects that are on hold right now, new centers that are opening up, and uh, it's a little frustrating that we can't get them. Uh, started and and I know the the owners of those surgery centers are getting very frustrated. Also financially, uh, we all know that that's been um, it's qu- quite a challenge. Even for those organizations that have uh, received PPP funding, I'm going to talk about that in a few minutes uh, as to you know what that impact is is going to be. Alex, you and I were talking before we went live about uh, just kind of reminding people um, don't let all of your administrative staff go. Um, can you tell a horse, a couple, not horse stories, but uh, a couple stories? I mean, because it's your clients, right, that let go of their administrator? Oop, Alex is frozen. And he's muted. And he's because muted. he's frozen, he probably didn't hear you. Oh, well. well I'll, but I'll, I think, yeah, the credentialing especially, you, were, you wanted to make sure people... Yeah. So, I mean, what we're finding is that, especially credentialing right now, because you're going to have to, if, you're, if you've not credentialed... Uh, um, your employee, or your uh, physicians, right? Lately, or they're expiring during this time. That really is not something that has been um, um, allowed to expire. So uh, make sure that your credentialing staff is there and 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 working. And of course, you might be bringing on some uh, you know new doctors as a result of what's going on here if they're not able to work in the hospital. So definitely keep a a minimum of administrative staff on. Board. Alex must have just something must have happened. I think yeah, so I was going to tell him he was frozen, but he so he's, maybe Jenna ran in and knows. strangled him. <laughs> <laughs> We've been waiting for that to happen. <laughs> Quite anxiously, the only actually. Thing is this pause that's keeping it. It's saving. Um, just kind of a quick update on ambulatory healthcare strategies. One of the sponsors of the show, uh, and. Uh, literally all the people that uh, you're looking at are employees of Ambitory Healthcare Strategies, if He's you're back. watching us. Welcome back, Alex. Uh, <laughs> so you. we were talking about you while you were gone. Um, and, and uh, you know, we're doing very well. Um, all of us, uh, knock on wood, have been healthy. Um, and uh, we are obviously working. Nobody's had a vacation during this entire uh, pause, needless to say. Uh, we are... <laughs> We're actually. How would we uh, even do that? I know. <laughs> uh, we're even picking up clients during this time. We've actually picked up two uh, big clients uh, during the uh, uh, the coronavirus uh, uh, situation. I think people are realizing the, the value of of uh, companies like ours and how difficult it is to keep on top of the regulatory issues that we have. And uh, I'm glad that we have been here for our clients. Hopefully, uh, those of you that. Uh, um, you know, are, are struggling through this, uh, are, have been able to avail themselves of all the free resources that we're making available during this time on the ASCPodcast.com website. So don't hesitate to reach out to us if you'd like a more permanent solution, if you'd like to consider us in the future. Um, the ASC uh, podcast has also become the ASC industry's leader in virtual conferences. So uh, notice how I didn't call them webinars. I, I really dislike that term because I just really dislike doing a webinar where, you know, it's just one voice. Um, we have had so much fun, really. I say that. Hopefully people are not, like, rolling their eyes at me. Um, but we've had so much fun doing these uh, virtual conferences. So I encourage you to uh, visit the acpodcast.com website and see uh, the three we- webinars we've done so far, Infection Prevention 
Prevention Training, which is a virtual conference to prepare nurses to be infection preventionists and anybody else that's interested in infection prevention. What I found, and I think, Lori, you know this too, is that even administrators who might not have a a nursing background uh, can learn a lot by taking that training because they at least know the importance of that element and and, uh, kind of get a, a good feel for how difficult that job is and how important it is to provide that infection preventionist with all the resources possible. I don't think you and I've never really talked about that before, but as an administrator myself, as you know, somebody with a non-clinical background, I, I, I've learned a lot, you know, over the years about the importance of that position. Um, oh yeah. I, I mean, and I think it just stresses their, their need to support that, um, that person in the role right? and to understand that it's a big, part of the glue for the center. So I really encourage uh, anybody that's interested in infection prevention. It's not even interested. <laughs> I guess that's not the right term I should be using. Everybody should be taking this training, you know, that is involved in administration so that they truly understand the importance of this area. And this conference that we, we did, uh, the recording of it, really kind of emphasized not only the important role that existed even before the coronavirus, but how much more important it is even today. Uh, then we did a, a two-day uh, conference called the New New World uh, Conference 2020, a virtual conference for ambulatory surgery centers. Purpose of that was to kind of uh, you know provide individuals who uh, you know might have missed some of the state and national uh, conferences out there uh, some of the same material that uh, national speakers uh, have uh, uh, would have talked about if those conferences had gone on. So uh, and it allows you I can't remember was it 14 and a half credit hours. Um, if you're uh, CAS yeah. certified, and uh, and I think it was one hour of uh, CAPES uh, for people that are CAPES certified. Also remember the infection prevention training also had 5.75 hours of CAPE credit and 5.7 hours of AEU credit. So between those two conferences right there, you would more than make up all of your annual requirements for uh, for CASC. And then uh, last week we did the ASC road, uh, Roadmap to Recovery, probably our most successful uh, uh, conference yet. There was uh, over 100 people that uh, listened to it live, it is. Um, it is uh, the people are uh, are uh, buying access to it um, uh, to see it afterwards. And it was basically uh, it ended up being seven. Can you believe that that was seven hours long, everyone? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay, Mar- mostly about- because of me. <laughs> but there was just so much to talk about, and I just talked to somebody today about how they, you know, they listen to every moment of. And this is this is a doctor. Uh, who listened to every moment of it because, uh, you know, he, he learned so much from the, the process and, and realized all the work that he had ahead of him as he starts mm-hmm. up. So uh, go to our website at ASCPodcast.com for more information. Sue, uh, another exciting thing that's going on here, I know you're very excited about it, is the AORN Virtual Expo. Mm-hmm. That's running from May 1st to the to July 31st, and it's free for members. Um, there, there are several ways of... Getting into it, you can. Um, they have, they'll have a virtual expo hall. Um, they the only part that I've had a chance to look into right now are all the posters. You know that you usually see when you go to the conferences. They've got um, you know digital uh, posters you can pull up and look at all the different you know innovative ideas people have come up with, and you can stream the education on demand. So there's a lot of um, a lot huge. of good information there. Huge. I'm looking at it. It's amazing. And they even have a um, happy hour 
I mean, it doesn't yeah. get better than that. <laughs> <laughs> how, how does the uh, the alcohol come through the screen, though? That's what I want to know. <laughs> if anything's on the screen, that's a waste of alcohol. <laughs> when I'm record right that. now. But it, I just cleaned it, clicked into it, and oh, very impressive, very, very impressive. Yeah, I'm excited to explain. It's great that they give you so much time. Yes, right. you know, that you've got a lot of time that you can that you can spend. So a couple things that are important. Through it. it was free for members, mm-hmm. and yep. did I just pay yep. the membership dues that we just renewed? Yes. How much was it? It was like, is it like a hundred and forty? I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I paid it, and I don't remember. I don't know. It wasn't um, a whole lot, free. but so it's it not a lot of money for uh, for all that you're so getting. So much information so. that you got, um, yeah. and really even. Because if you were there, you'd have to choose between so many different yeah. sessions and try to fit it in, you know, in, in a few days. This mm-hmm. way you can see as much as you want to. It's currently $145. Okay. For, thank you, Jenna. One-year membership <laughs> or $306 for a three-year membership. Wow. So, again. Now, I'll tell you, I've been a member since uh, before 2000, uh, probably in the 1980s, I think I became a member. Um, and oh, before I was born, no, I'm older than you. Yeah, you needed to throw that at like for what purpose did you need to remind us? Of that? Um, I've never gone to one of their conferences, really. We've had so, neither, and I this will so be my first one, yeah, yeah, because we were going to go, yeah, we were actually going to be um, so. uh, there recording a live yeah. episode. Well, so. live by that definition, meaning we're gonna, you know, get inter- uh, people interviewed, mm-hmm. and you know, it's only once the coronavirus started, that we actually did real live conferences. So yep. so I think that's a great advantage. I, I believe you can still sign up, mm-hmm. become a member today, because I think that's what we – well, ours didn't expire. We just renewed it, right? Yeah, and, it was getting yeah. ready to expire. Yeah. Um, and they do say, like you said, some social stuff. Celebrate the year of the nurse. Join our digital party with special giveaways, recognition, and fun resources. So That's a great lots segue. That's a good stuff. It is. So <laughs> this is – 2020, of course, is the year of the nurse and midwife. Um, and so Nurses Week, they've expanded to Nurses Month. Um, and they've separated that into to segments, kind of. So week one is self-care, which is obviously this year really, really important. Um, I think for nurses and most healthcare workers right now, you're kind of at either extreme. You're either overworked and really dealing with some really, really sick people, and people are really, you know, there have been suicides, and, I mean, it's just really hitting people hard. But then on the other hand, there are some people locally, and I'm sure in a lot of places where people are afraid to go to the hospitals, where um, nurses are being laid off or furloughed. So I think almost no matter where you are in this, it's, it's a tough time for nurses. So if people can think of something to do to help take care of themselves and I think it's really important um, week two is recognition week three professional development um, so good time to take advantage of mm-hmm. some of the conferences, uh, conferences yeah. that we talked about and week four is community engagement That's, I'm going to have to figure out some way to uh, celebrate all of my uh, nurses here I got to admit that it's not one of those things I got to so yeah Sue's giving me that look <laughs> Uh oh, I'm in trouble now. <laughs> and it's a whole month. About a I know, half a whole hour month. on the podcast. <laughs> uh, just kind of a quick update on the uh, podcast. Um, our audience continues to grow. We are close to 20,000 downloads. Can you believe that, Sue? 
104 episodes, 20,000 downloads. Uh, We are by far, well, really the only (laughs) um, podcast out there that that has an audience this large that's really totally dedicated to this. Um, But, um, um, oh, I guess there's one more thing I did want to say. The website is up to purchase access. Didn't we already talk about that? Up to it, so, if you want to access the virtual conferences that we've already talked about, uh, make sure you go to our website at ASCPodcast.com. But talking about other uh, podcasts, ASCA, the ASC Association, does have a podcast. It's uh, it's for members only, so it's not something that you can see unless you're a member. And uh, I, uh, Bill Prentice actually uh, interviewed me yesterday, which was really weird because I'm usually am interviewing Bill. Uh, so he interviewed me for an episode that should drop sometime today. Um, about the PPP program, the, uh, uh, the uh, payroll, uh, the Paycheck Protection Program. Uh, so if you are a member, um, uh, log in and then do a search for the uh, for an Ask a Podcast there. Um, it's available only to Ask a members. And uh, as of the time that just before I logged on, that that episode was not available. But there is quite a bit of detail. But I did want to talk a little bit about some of the things I spoke of during that. Uh, the podcast about the Paycheck Protection Program. A uh, couple uh, piece of advice. So by now, uh, most of you that are going to get money from the PPP have probably already received it, which means you are running out of time to bring your employees back if you want to be able to uh, have the maximum amount forgiven. So you need to spend, uh, you know, there's an eight-week period of time that uh, you uh, that are, are, is going to be watched, and if you bring your employees back during that eight-week time frame, uh, you're going to be able to get 100 percent of the uh, the employees that were certain requirements there. But uh, you'll be able to have that for that amount forgiven uh, in uh, of the loan. Um, so the situation there is uh, any employees that you can you can include in the amount forgiven. Payroll up to $100,000 annualized. So any employees that earn less than $100,000, you'll get 100% uh, uh, forgiven uh, for those employees. And then for anybody that earns over $100,000, up to the $100,000 for that employee. Uh, You're also uh, eligible to uh, um, have forgiven the amount of the uh, various benefits they have, such as the payroll taxes, insurance, health insurance, and payroll tax. I'm remembering all that, right, Alex? I don't think there's... Oh, and and, uh, also uh, pension uh, liabilities there is included. Uh, You're also allowed to uh, use the money for rent, utilities, and one other thing. Rent, utilities. Yeah, the benefits. Sorry, I'm looking at my script here. Rent, mortgage, interest, utilities. So now most employ most uh, surgery centers don't actually have a mortgage on their books, so most of the time it's going to be rent. As long as of the amount that you borrowed under the PPP program, 75% of it goes towards salaries. The, the PPP program, by virtue of its name, the Paycheck Protection Program, was meant to help cover the cost of uh, payroll uh, during this eight-week period. Now, even if you're not able to use all of that money for uh, payroll and rent, uh, it does turn into a loan at the end of it. Um, if you don't use it all for those purposes, it's still a pretty darn good loan because it's a 1% loan 
uh, payable over a two-year period, and the payments are deferred for the first six months. So it's still not a bad deal. One of the misconceptions out there is that you would have to return the money at the end of the eight weeks. That's not true. It just turns into a loan that's not forgiven, or that portion of it. You also have uh, part of the the, uh, Paycheck Protection Program is making sure that not only are you spending the money uh, on that payroll, but you also have to keep your head count uh, up to the number that it was prior to... um, uh, the coronavirus. And if you don't keep that headcount up to that full amount, uh, again, a percentage of the uh, total payroll cost will be, uh, uh, only a percentage of it will be forgiven. And I believe if that number drops to below 60%, if your uh, headcount drops to 60% or less of what your total headcount was before, uh, then none of the uh, money can be forgiven. So be very careful about this. One of the things I talked about on the podcast yesterday is the importance of doing a budget here. Uh, so that you keep uh, track of the amount that you're spending. Uh, You're very careful about keeping very accurate records. Uh, We don't know what the record keeping is going to be like. It it will be the responsibility of the bank, at least that's what we've been told so far, to come up with some mechanism for auditing the amount that was used. One recommendation I really make is that you put any money that you receive from the PPP program into a separate bank account and then transfer into your operating account only the amounts that would be eligible for um, uh, forgiveness. And that way you have a really good, clean record of how you use that money. Uh, I did not mention beforehand how you ask questions, because we really want to make this an interactive podcast, which is the main reason that we do live podcasts. Uh, so there's two ways you can do that. If you're listening to us through Podbean, Podbean uh, there is a chat function in there. We're monitoring that chat function. You can also email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com, or if you're watching us on YouTube, live on YouTube, uh, there's also that chat within YouTube. So please ask us any questions that you might have here. We'll be glad to uh, answer them. Uh, any other comments? Anybody else want to talk anything about the Paycheck Protection Program, the PPP? Ann Geyer's on. Yeah, I am. How you doing, <laughs> Ann? You said you weren't going to come no. on today. <laughs> well, I wasn't, but I didn't want to miss it, and I got home oh, earlier than I thought. That's wonderful. How is everybody? Very good. And you? We're just good. talking about the Paycheck Protection Program. Wonderful okay. program out there. Um, hey, John. Sure. In, in that program, the um, the the numbers, the um, staff numbers, is that their their full and part time employees? That is that the headcount as opposed to other extraneous staff? So, uh, for say, a center that has all per diems wouldn't probably uh, qualify. That's where it gets a little complicated. Hopefully you didn't actually, you know, there, there would have been no need to uh, furlough your per diems because they don't work full time anyway, or they don't even have a guarantee of a certain number of hours. Um, and so, I mean, again, we're not absolutely sure about this. That's why you have to be very careful about the budgeting as you're going through this. Um, mm-hmm. Just, uh, it's really advisable, certainly not to prune uh, anybody off the payroll at this point, so you can keep those headcounts up. Uh, but yeah, it would include all of the staff, uh, clinical and non-clinical, uh, part-time and per diem. Because remember, the government doesn't really recognize even a per diem as anything different than a part-timer. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, hopefully you were very careful about how you uh, brought people on board. And you still have time to bring them back, of course, uh, on your payroll. Um during this uh, this eight week period here, but 
please do everything you can. I mean, this is free money, basically, that get, can help you during this time frame. And, and I think one of the arguments, one of the comments that somebody made to me is, why, why do I want to bring my employees back right now when I, I'm not doing surgery? Well, a couple reasons for that. First of all, um, we're very worried that some of these employees might, frankly, never come back. I mean, I'm, I don't I'm, I'm afraid that some of our older nurses might just at this point say, this is it, I'm tired of of uh, this hassle. Um, you know, maybe their employer didn't give them a nice uh, a gift during the nurse's week here. Um, maybe. <laughs> nurse's maybe month. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think, and also, you know, some of them are going to go to work in a hospital. I can't imagine somebody going to the work in the hospital and saying, oh, I'm going to leave the surgery center. But I guess that's, that is uh, something that could happen. So you want to keep them happy um, and you want to, uh, you know, keep them engaged in your organization. And there are a lot of things that they can do. Uh, you, you know, well, I think we all talk a little bit about that is what are some of the activities that you can be doing uh, with those employees during this time that you bring them back and you might not be fully utilized. Even if you are doing surgery, you're probably not doing the volume of surgery that you were doing pre, uh, prior to the coronavirus, which means that in order to bring back enough employees to be able to get the full amount of the forgiveness, you're going to have people not working at their full potential. So let's use this time for education. Let's use this time for getting caught up on all of those things. One of the things I mentioned to Bill yesterday was, uh, and uh, Lori and Ann, you'll probably agree with me on this, is that so many times I go into a surgery center uh, doing a survey and I ask the question of an employee, you know, have you read the accreditation manual? Or I'll ask the question of the nurse manager or the administrator, and I'm shocked to find out that they did not read the accreditation handbook or did not know it, you know, by heart like all of us here uh, do. So uh, this is a good time to, we, we might not have a better time to uh, kind of introduce everybody to the eight core chapters and uh, the Triple HC handbook and the very complicated chapter structure, which I've never been able to learn uh, in the Joint Commission handbook. So, you know, introduce them that, to that and uh, and help them to, uh, to learn more uh, about the accreditation process. Anybody else have any comments about other things that you can do with your people as you bring them back from the PPP, uh, under the PPP? And I think in just a general way, how we talked about people getting out of practice. So the more people can be back in the center, hands-on things, even if they're, you know, not yet doing procedures, but just kind of, as you said, looking through the policy manual, um, checking the emergency cart, just keeping themselves familiar with all of that clinical stuff. Well, and one other comment I make is that we know how cross-training can be so useful. Mm-hmm. And and I'm not just cross-training pre-op and post-op with, you know, the operating room. Uh, but even, and not, not so much cross-training people in the, uh, on the nursing side with people in the business office and vice versa. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, this, this could be a rare opportunity to kind of get everybody to learn a little bit about everybody else's job. Yeah, and uh, not just their jobs, just building that, that team spirit kind yeah. of. I mean, how often do you get a chance to actually talk with each other and bond a little bit and doing, you right. know, like I was saying, some of those posters I was looking at, I thought it looked like a cool idea to do some training in sort of a um, – escape room way and usually you talk about the ARN conference had a couple of these sessions yeah and um I think most of that stuff you don't have time to do on a regular basis so if you can do some you know do some things where there's learning involved but also that team building yeah it's a good time I mean I've always felt how that it's extremely important to get the business office to learn more about the the you know what what goes on Mm -hmm. being you know in the clinical area and and 
just as important to get the uh, the nursing staff to understand the role that uh, administrative staff has in the organization. And sterile processing, interacting yeah. with um, you know the people that are actually using the instruments that they're right. that they're cleaning. Yeah, I have a center that's doing what they're calling shadow days, mm -hmm. so that like the nurse, one of the nurses spends the day with the scheduling coordinator, so that they can bounce ideas off each other, and, and each of them can can have more appreciation for what you what the other does. Yeah, um, it's just a way to well, again build that team spirit, which is so important. Um, and you get so used to your day to day, you don't really think about yeah. what everybody else is doing. Or do you have newer Judy, nurses or even ways? Sorry, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, Sue. It works both ways because this doesn't always understand all the parts of the puzzle take place and why she has to adhere to the time frames that mm -hmm. the nurses have asked her to. We did something similar to that with the doctor's office schedulers. And we oh, had great idea. they would argue with us about it doesn't take him an hour and a half to do an arthroscopy and blah, blah, blah. And we said, you don't understand. So we invited them in, got permission from everybody. And oh my gosh, you talk about an eye opener. And we didn't get any from that point on. I bet you didn't. Great idea. Yeah. So again, uh, you know, try to take full advantage. I think our levels are dropping. I know it sounds quieter, but also, and, and I was going to say, if you have newer nurses in the center, or even people that just don't feel strong in a particular area or on a particular procedure, you know, mm -hmm. pair them up with somebody who's more of an expert and use this time to really build their skills and their confidence. So again, uh, do what you can to take full advantage of the PPP program and uh, be very. Um, you know, careful about the calculations, keep very good records of this. We at, at, uh, at AHS will be, uh, and, and we'll try to do something with the podcast too, uh, really trying to develop some tools as we get more information about what type of reporting is going to be required. Um, so I wanted to check in with uh, uh, everybody on our team. Um, Alex, I was going to start with you. So uh, Alex, of course, is our Director of Operations for Amateur Healthcare Strategies. He's a life safety expert also. And uh, so, Alex, tell me a little bit about what's going on in, uh, in your world right now. Absolutely. And uh, actually feeding off of what you guys were talking about before, um, things that employees can do um, while they're at the center and you're paying them, um, life safety checks. Um, there's a lot of weekly, daily, monthly checks that need to be done. Um, and a lot of those can be done by um, any of your employees as long as you know they get a little bit of training. So some of the questions that have come up with um, as far as life safety issues go is how, you know, a lot of us are not letting our vendors into our ASCs anymore, um, or we're trying to be very selective. So how, how are we selective with our contractors that are, um, you know, performing a lot of these life safety checks? Um, you know, we want to check all of our biomedical equipment, but somebody has to actually come in and do that. So uh, what precautions are you taking in place, putting in place? And, um, you know, when are you letting the vendor in? Is it on patient days or is it be before the patients arrive, you know? I, highly suggest before the patients, um, hopefully days before, um, even the first patient, um, especially with those annual checks. 
and wanting to point out again um, that you know maintenance staff are essential workers. Um, that hasn't changed since the beginning of this, um, but you know it's important to stress again as we are bringing people back on board, making sure that you know maintenance staff are among those. And also something that's come up is air changes. Um, it, it's not a bad idea to check what your air changes are. I don't think all of us know exactly what that is without uh, talking to our contractor, looking it up. So I was just going to say, Alex, because, you know, you say that as though everybody in our audience is going to understand what an air exchange is. So what we mean by this is how many times does all of the air in an operating room or any other room, but mainly we talk about it in operating rooms or treatment rooms, how many times does it change or completely get replaced within an hour period? And uh, the the normal number is, uh, was it 15-3? It's 15 air exchanges per hour with three of them from being with outside air. Uh, but okay. under the situation, it has changed. Talk a little bit about what, uh, what the, the new recommendations are. It's not a requirement, but it is a recommendation under COVID. Right. And it, it'll be very specific to whether your uh, center wants to go to, you know, 99 or 99.9% accuracy. Um, I, I would direct you all to the CDC website. Um, they have a very nice table there that says, okay, this is how many air changes per hour I have. Um, you know, this is how long I have to wait in between each of my procedures um, for that, for um, basically the coronavirus to be definitely out of that room with 99 or 99.9% .9%, um, uh, accuracy, basically. So that's definitely something to take into account, and you'll probably need to talk to your biomedic or your uh, your HVAC company um, in order to figure that out. And we should probably note that that we had an extensive conversation about this whole topic uh, during the ASC Roadmap to Recovery um, uh, video conference that we did last week. So if you want more details, uh, again, visit our website at ASCPodcast.com to to get more information about that that uh, conference. Absolutely. And this is a good time, too, um, for your staff to become very familiar with your manufacturer's guidelines, manufacturer's instructions. Um, <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I've asked uh, all of our infection control nurses and uh, or the rest of our staff, you know, what do I do with this instrument? Or, you know, how many times we've been asked that and how do we clean this or can I use a cabbie wipe on it? Um, you know, that's what those are for. You have to, you have to really become familiar with that. Yeah. The and answer don't, is always follow the manufacturer's instructions for you. And don't you know, assume that you them. know what they say because, yeah. you know, this is, I mean, I, again, I, my, I appeal to my other surveyors here. I, that's what I find when, whenever I'm asking questions, and this isn't not so much in the life state, now the volumes have gone up again. That's so weird. Because um, <laughs> you're talking loud <laughs> How many times have we uh, looked at the um, equipment that we use for uh, waiver testing? And, you know, they, they get a new uh, uh, set of, um, of uh, pregnancy tests, and they don't bother to read the IFUs for it, and then there's new instructions them, on it. They don't realize they might be a little bit different. That's right. And some people, not every center, it's even clear exactly where those are kept or, yeah. you know, they're 
chemicals information or any of that stuff. So that's a good thing to make sure people almost do a right. treasure hunter. Right. <laughs> you know, we're tour around the place, make sure everybody knows where all that stuff is. Yeah, that's that's actually a good point, too, is maybe a time for one of those treasure hunts. Go on, yeah, Alex. Sorry, right. we keep interrupting you. Oh, you're, you're good. Uh, and during our um, shutdown procedures, we it came to light that, you know, there's some equipment that shouldn't actually be unplugged. Um, or if it was that, you know, there's certain startup procedures that need to be um, done with it. So that's very important as we as we plug all those instruments and machines back in, um, making sure that we're doing it properly. And also fire drills. Now is a great time to do fire drills. And maybe um, maybe if you've already done one virtually, you can do it in person now, um, depending on what the you know, the precautions you want to take are, mm-hmm. um, you know, actually, actually sounding the alarm and evacuating both, yeah. both would be very important. Yeah. I was thinking, actually, you made me think when you were talking about doing the monthly checks that this is a good time to maybe bring other people into say the nurse manager or the administrator is always doing the exit light checks or the, hand hygiene monitoring or anything like that. You know, we always tell people when we go into centers, you know, you can spread that out, you can delegate that, but who has time to train somebody and to walk them through it? Well, now's a good time. And then moving forward, that's something off of your plate. And plus you get that buy-in from other people that are maybe, you know, will be a little bit more excited about their job coming back, that they've got a, a different responsibility. Right. And I can't tell you how many times I've talked to a facilities person in They've said, I don't know why I do this, but, mm-hmm. you know, they told me to t- check this, uh, push this button every month and record it on this log. And, don't know what it's supposed you know, to do. It's a great, it's a great to time to tell them right. why. <laughs> and at what point to talk to somebody about it because, you know, people writing down the wrong temperature on their med fridge. Well, you right. know, you're, you're tracking oh, actually, that you're for talking a about the IFUs. The other, I was in a center doing a survey. They had all their IFUs, but nobody knew where they were. Yeah. Yeah. Once that involved all of the SPD, which is where so much of it is. Yeah. When they found them, they were in pre-op in a cabinet. And I, it was like, well, in my head, I'm thinking, well, how often are you looking at these if you didn't even know where yeah. they were? Yeah. yeah. And I think that people fall back on the, well, that's how we've always done it. Mm-hmm. And it's always been fine. And we don't have an infection rate. And Unfortunately, we can't do that anymore. I mean, the reason we have things is that we're supposed to use them. And it, it's almost like saying, okay, for 30 minutes every day, I sit down and look at the IFUs and go through them. Yeah. I don't know what the solution is. I really, there's a part of me that's very cynical about how people are really using these. Yeah, yeah I've been in centers where they're, the policy manual and all the IFUs um, were locked up, you know, and it, that's... Not doing anybody any good because nobody no. can buy yeah. them. Yeah. You know if there's dust on them, that's a problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or they're yellowed. Well, maybe yellowed isn't so bad. but Or they're all thrown into <coughs> one binder. They're not sorted in any particular yeah. order, yeah. even um, alphabetical. If you needed that one to do something, you'd never find it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything else, Alex? No, I think that's... That's it for my end. 
Okay, Jenna and Lori, um, let's talk a little bit about respirators. Let's not. <laughs> <laughs> I think we are all <laughs> so tired about talking about N95s, never but want uh, to talk about them. I so never tired of respirators. Yeah, but tell them the big news. That that's this is the important thing to to get across. I think uh, today, but nothing else from this podcast. You should understand this concept. What would that be? <laughs> <laughs> Look at your script. News, it's just things that our centers aren't used to doing that they've never had to use in 95 masks before. It's old rules. That's right. That is very true. I just had to pick on Lori for a second. You know, we talked about instructions for use. Like, our instructions for use for the podcast is looking at the script. Now, when we say script, we're not reading from a script, of course. We have, a, like, an outline. But, but she has it. I hope she's she, looking at it. I hope she does a better job with her IFUs than she does with uh... just just <laughs> to make it clear to the audience, if Jen didn't send me the script, I wouldn't have had it. So Mr. <laughs> Oswami. Um, I, I, I think the email said I'll be sending you a link and I didn't really ever see that link. Okay, good. Thank <laughs> you. Thank you. See? Oh, wow. but, but actually if if any of the centers out there um, whether they're your clients or not, our clients or not, um, have instituted the use of any kind of respirator other than the usual surgical or procedural mask, OSHA requires that they have a respiratory protection program. So surprise, if you have them, you better write it. And, and for our clients, we have written it. <laughs> Yeah, and we're constantly and, revising it, so I can't wait till it hit, we hit send. But um, I actually just sent another little tweak to to Jenna. But um, it it is required, and 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 it, it's in that policy. It talks about the fit testing and the seal testing, and also a medical uh, clearance that you have to perform for your staff. Um, we are training. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, training and education. Yeah. And also, um, that that needs to be done. So, even if, I think even if you're not using any kind of a respirator, if uh, any centers out there, still do a risk assessment just to show that this is why we're not using respirators. If you do procedures that you never have any aerosol generating, um, you know, uh, byproduct. If all your patients are uh, local or MAC, if you're never intubating, um, then, you know, you put that in your risk assessment. Um, there was last week on our um, virtual webinar, podcast, whatever you want to call Don't it. Don't use the W word. <laughs> Don't use a webinar. Uh, you know, <laughs> someone brought up the fact that um, if you're doing CPR, yeah. respirators required. Um, you know, which blew my brains out. And, um, you know, I never thought of it because being an old, old, be quiet, Alex, old <laughs> OR nurse, He's nodding furious. I, I'm thinking operating room. I wasn't thinking anywhere else in the facility. I wasn't, you know, I mean, back in the day, uh, we had a doctor that um, had to get coded in the um, doctor's changing room. And that's when they discovered the crash cart didn't fit through the door. Um, you know, it's just stuff like that, that, you know, didn't out of sight, out of mind. I'm not thinking about it. So, you know, again, you make that assessment for your center, um, and then you move forward. But yeah, if you have respirators, you have to have a 
protection plan and you have to, um, your governing board has to delegate um, someone to oversee the program. So it's yet another thing that has to be included in your annual appointments. Yeah. So and again, as Jenna said, this is not something that we normally uh, are used to doing in a surgery center. I mean, how many times have, uh, I mean, I don't remember ever having to use a N95 mask in any of my centers over the 30 years I've been in the industry. I, I've never been fit tested in my million years of being alive. Because that, you, in general, you don't accept any patient that would have some, in general, most centers do not accept no. someone Correct. who has... Um, an illness that would require an N95. But right now where we're in such an unknown um, status. Yeah. Uh, a lot of centers are choosing. Now, once we get to a point where we have accurate testing, and again, this would go into your risk assessment, um, you know, we might be able to eliminate the uh, the need or the feeling of the need for them. Um, we're getting, uh, and uh, John Van Valkenburg just mentioned, we're getting a lot of uh, background noise, like a television is on in another room. It, it kind of let up for a minute, but it yeah, sounds like it it's looks like it's actually that. coming from uh, Judy's. She just put herself on mute. Okay. I think that is it on been... when I'm muted? Yeah. <laughs> there you go. I can kind of see on the on the monitor here, so uh, thank you, John, for bringing that up. But we we could hear some of the whole family home. So (laughs) (laughs) thank you for listening. (laughs) So so important takeaway is that uh, you know if you are using N95s, as most of you are in in some format, you're going to have to have this um, uh, respiratory program. And uh, um, there is information on the OSHA website if you do put a um, if you do a search of the OSHA website uh, for respiratory protection program, it'll actually pull up a 1910.134. document. One nine one zero point one three four. There you go. One nine one zero point one three four. That's the OSHA requirement, and then within that, it has all the ABCD <coughs> twenty seven things. You know. And a, and a point I need to make here, I I wrote it <laughs> in the script. Re- remember that OSHA has no sense of humor. Um, mm-hmm. You know they. Uh, this isn't like CMS, you know, uh, uh, Lori and Ann and I can come into a center and we can, uh, we cite you, uh, and then you got to fix it. OSHA comes in and finds something like this and they fine you. Um, we don't have, we don't have that, uh, that power, but, uh, OSHA can fine you. And not only do they fine you, but they fine you a significant amount of money that, I mean, sometimes five figures or more. So, uh, make sure that, uh, you're uh, not giving them any excuse for, uh, for doing that. So look into the, uh, infection program. If you are a client, of course, of, uh, um, the, uh, we'll John, did you see ask a connect this morning, the discussion about you, the, the type of anesthesia determining whether or not the, I think it was the air exchanges needed to be done. Did y'all see that? Yeah. Yeah. So if you did, if you did Mac. You didn't necessarily have to wait, but if you did any kind of general or intubation, you had to wait. Yes, yeah, so what Ann's talking about is the amount of time between procedures that you need yes. to wait for the room to have cleared out any uh, particulates that you want to move out. We did talk about this last week during the uh, the live uh, conference, right? Yeah. yeah. It, it's, it's, if you're doing an aerosol-generating procedure then you would want to follow the guidelines for the letting the air exchanges um, 
filter your room. If, if you're assuming that all your patients are positive. But if, but even if, even, even if you're assuming your patients are positive, if you're not doing a procedure that's going to generate their um, cough reflux uh, or respiratory aerosols, um, then it's just like having them in your lobby. You're not, you're not going to be doing your air exchanges in your lobby. So if you're doing procedure on my bunion under Mac and I'm just laying on the table with my mask on and maybe some supplemental oxygen that I'm inhaling, you don't have to worry about the air exchanges. But if you're doing um, a sinus procedure on me, um, you're going to wait for that um, air exchange, or if you're doing general anesthesia where I've been intubated, you're going to wait for that air, those air exchanges to occur. That's that's the recommended guidelines right now. Okay. The only reason I brought it up because I think people are still confused. Yeah. I mean, at, if you look at how the back and forth on that. So I was hoping, you know, if there's anybody that wasn't on our podcast last week, this might help them. Yeah. But I appreciate that. Right. And, and again, you and you know, each end of each individual center can decide themselves. If they want to do it for 100% of their procedures, then that's their choice. Yeah. But it should be in their protocol or their policy that they've um, created um, for this type of situation. So, you know, if you overdo it, it's not going to hurt you. But if you underdo it, it may. Um, as long as you, as long as you can justify the decision you made, that's that's the main thing to start with. Um, can we Thank uh, you. veer off of our, um, our outline just for a second, because uh, one of the things that has been coming up quite a bit, and I don't know why I didn't put this into the outline, is the issue of elective versus non-elective procedures. Um, quite a bit of, of my time over the last um, 72 hours has been dealing with our clients and the questions of what is elective versus non-elective. And this is being generated, especially in New York State, uh, because in New York, um, the governor um, announced that we can begin doing elective procedures. Uh, the hospitals can begin doing elective procedures, but the surgery centers can't, uh, assuming that they can uh, meet certain criteria. And that generated a whole conversation about, you know, why can the hospitals start doing that before we can? And, 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 Pretty uh, stringent uh, yeah. circumstances they have to meet, too. Right. And, and right now, the situation is that there are very few hospitals that actually can meet the criteria uh, to begin doing the elective. But it did start the conversation about elective versus non-elective. And one of the things that we know, just from Ambitory Healthcare Strategies clients, at least for now, is that most of the centers that have shut down um, have uh, – or mo- the centers that have shut down – um, are considering starting up again, but they're, when they're start, considering restarting, they're thinking about doing elective procedures. We do need to remind you that you are still allowed to do non-elective. And one of the conversations we've had quite a bit lately is, are some of those things that were elective six weeks ago still elective, uh, especially in the GI area? After a certain period of time, um, you know, those things get worse. Uh, pain management, that issue has come up also. Um, so I, I just wanted to kind of throw that out there, um, you know, to our, our panel also, talk just a little bit about the situation. So if, two parts of this is that if you are uh, shut down and you're starting to think about restarting again, um, and the main reason that you shut down is because you can't generate enough cash to be able to pay the payroll, 
Now with the PPP program, you might be able to start back up again doing a limited schedule of, uh, shall we say, non-elected procedures and still be able to generate enough cash to keep uh, you know, keep going. So that's one thing I would encourage people to start thinking about, uh, just uh, to be able to kind of keep things moving, to get ready, you know, to ramp up as quickly as you can, you know, when electives are allowed again. Um, but one point that has been made uh, to me and that I've had conversations with, especially our GI doctors, is those those situations that might have been relatively minor, um, you know, six weeks ago are no longer that situation. People might be getting, you know, uh, their... their uh, um, colonoscopy or their upper GI uh, situation might be getting worse. Maybe there's more bleeding. Uh, maybe they're suffering more. Uh, pain management is another area that we really are worried about. People, the longer that they go without that medication that they're used to having, are probably getting into a worse situation, maybe even uh, requiring more opioids, which we know is not a good thing. Uh, any other observations from my, uh, my panel here about that and their thoughts on that? I think just well, like you, know, you would... Um, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, like you had said, weighing the, the risk versus the benefit and having that really deep discussion, maybe between a couple doctors yeah. and um, whatever the decision, if you can back it up and document that decision, that um, process, you know, and just show that you are looking at each um, individual Situation. Um, instance and yeah. deciding what really has become um, urgent at this point. That's the important thing. Well, well, like um, what's been discussed um, for the restarting of your centers, whether it was via our virtual um, discussions or, you know, ASCA or any of those other things, you're going to be looking at your, um, your, the new criteria that you set as in for your patients, but also for your procedures. And part of that criteria is looking at the, cases that you had canceled and that's where you would start besides urgent knowingly urgent coming through but you would start with those to say okay who that who did we put off that really shouldn't be put off yeah. for this extended period of time so that would be a really good place to start is looking at who we didn't do who we postponed are they able to wait another six weeks, four weeks, because it's already been close to eight weeks for them. So, you know, for any one of your practices, whatever your specialty is, that's one way to look at it. Is it going to cause them harm? I, I had a board meeting this, meet, uh, this morning with one of our, our, our clients, and they were, uh, it, it was a good conversation because it, uh, one of the, the uh, owners confronted, it wasn't confronting, just questioned another one of the owners who was doing uh, pain management procedures. Um, and he says, you know, how are you justifying um, those cases? How are you justifying continuing to do them? And uh, the pain doctor, uh, you know, did an excellent job of explaining his situation in, in quite uh, a level of detail, especially talking about the opi opioid situation and the type of pain that his patients are now uh, are suffering. And, you know, at the end of that conversation, everybody on the board totally agreed with the position and, and what he was doing, you know, and I, uh, I encourage them to make sure that we document that fully and document the fact that somebody questioned that. Uh, in other words, you know, not, not just sitting back and saying, oh, yeah, we probably better not put that in the minutes. No, put that into the minutes because it shows that you as an organization are really questioning everything that's going on and that the doctors are not afraid to confront each other about their practices as long as you can justify what you're doing, of course. Yeah, and, you know, yeah, we have to... Yeah, you just made... Yeah. Oh, no, go ahead. Me. 
you just you just made a great point about minutes yeah. from governing body me, uh, meetings or quapi. I worked with a practice administrator one time that they had actually put her over the ASC, and she wanted nothing in the board minutes that could be traced or could be used against us. No details at all. Yeah. Well, the doctors that were not at that meeting, if you read those minutes, you had no clue what was discussed, what had gone on. Can you weigh in on what your advice is? Like you said, definitely put it in the minutes. I mean, we're going to be as surveyors and as mm-hmm. CMS comes in, we're going to be looking at that. What's your advice? Absolutely. I've always erred toward uh, documenting well. I mean, be very careful not to be very specific about cases, for example. You don't want anything because that information is discoverable. But the more documentation you have there as to what your decision is uh, and and your decision process was, the more likely that you'll be able to justify that in court if you are sued in the future or if you're called on the carpet in this situation for keeping open when you – you know, when there is a government order not to. Uh, when I walk into a center uh, and I only see, you know, one page of notes from a board meeting that went on for three hours, you know, I mean, maybe, I, I mean, I've had board meetings that I can document in one page and, and those are usually, okay, I had to appoint somebody. Um, but but generally those minutes need to be pages long. Four to five pages are are not uncommon for most of our centers to document fully what's going on. So, you know, to that end, and, you know, we should have a conversation uh, in the minutes or the minutes should document that Dr. Smith talked to Dr. You know, asked Dr. Jones about, you know, the, the number of cases that he was doing. Don't be afraid of this. I mean, because th- this agree. is how you justify that. Um, and, and, and then when somebody fights that, you can point to the minutes and say, we, we had that argument. We did disagree with it, but this is the reasoning behind it. And, and then that turns the tide on, on the person that's questioning that. That forces them now to argue against what your decision was. Uh, and it makes yeah. it for a very different conversation. Well, the other thing you're proving is that the, go- the board actually was involved. Yeah. And, and that there's corporate liability that the board has assumed to oversee every part of the operations and financials. Right. And, and I, I mean, that would be my argument, too. I just wanted to point that out. Absolutely. Very good point. Um, anybody else want to weigh in on anything else on elective versus non-elective? I think this is a conversation that we're going to have to continue. Uh, we'll continue to talk about it um, you know, on the podcast, of course, as we start to, uh, to to ramp up those procedures, I think we need to make it very clear. We talked about this last week during the uh, the roadmap conference that uh, please don't uh, don't believe that you're going to get up to your full volume in the next couple months or three months. It's going to take a while. Um, it, everything is going to be different. As we, we, I mean, we spent seven hours talking about this last week. Everything is going to be different. Your cleaning processes are going to be different. You're going to be socially distancing your, audi- your audience, your, uh, uh, your patients coming in. You might have to, you know, you're, you're, you might have to wait for air exchanges. You might be sitting around there, you know, in the center just waiting for the air to, to you know, we've never had to worry about that before, but we've got to take every precaution possible in order to protect our patients here. And that's going to mean that it's going to be a slower schedule. It's going to mean that we're going to be working longer hours. It's going to mean that we might be working on Saturdays, maybe even, heaven forbid, you know, Sundays in order to be able to keep the, you know, the volumes up that we had before. I don't think any of us here believe that we're going to reach full 
capacity or again, or our full volume levels, you know, for another six months. So be prepared and, and prepare your doctors to understand that they are, um, they are literally desperate right now to get back to work. And uh, I understand it. I mean, their revenue has, has uh, slowed to nothing. And, uh, you know, they, they need to get back to work. And, and of course, our patients need to be served, you know, uh, by this. Um, and, and it's going to get even worse if the hospitals are the only place that they can get this surgery done uh, and they can't even open yet under, you know, like in New York State, um, that's going to hold off. And we have the capacity to be able to do this, but somebody has to step in and start making some decisions about the safe way, you know, to start doing these procedures that are going to be backlogged. Okay, uh, Judy, you've been very, very busy lately <laughs> as the uh, director of our educational services. Uh, let's just yeah. talk a little bit about what's going on. And I, I think one comment that I, I kind of want to lead uh, off on this area is that uh, just kind of reminding everybody of the annual mandatory education requirements and the fact that, um, you know, every year you're going to have to do mandatory education. Um, and that education is broken into two different elements. One is um, that which you can do that is kind of generic. I don't like using that term generic, but uh, but that's that education. It doesn't matter what center you're talking about. Uh, you can get the education. A lot of this can, frankly, be done online. There's services out there like uh, MedTrainer and HealthStream, you know, both excellent uh, sources of uh, online educational programs there. And they're great for doing this uh, um, This. Uh, uh, education that can be done for, you know, any surgery center. But you are going to need to supplement it with in-house training that is specific to your center. Judy, can you just talk a little bit about those things that, uh, kind of the difference between those two different elements, what can be done um, for all centers and what needs to be speci- needs to be uh, personalized to your center? Certainly. Of course I can. Um, first of all, yeah, you, John makes a good point. Remember that we have to do mandatory education. Remember that if it's one of the things you haven't got your people working on now, now's a perfect time. <clears throat> but John's right. Uh, let me get that in recording. I, I'm sorry. Oh, stop. <laughs> uh, Judy, be careful with your background noise. We're having some problems again with your background noise. See, with my headphones on, I can't hear it. Yeah. But wait, wait, wait. Hold that thought for one second. Sure. <laughs> To go kill somebody. <laughs> so for the, those of you that are not watching on video, uh, Judy has left in front of her computer. She's turned her sound off, so we're not going to no, hear Allie, the screaming. Right. <laughs> and we will not tell Judy what we just said about her while she was gone. <laughs> are you sure? <laughs> Thank you, Judy. Is that any better? It is much better. Thank you. Okay. So the point that Sean's making is that you can get your education on bloodborne pathogens and OSHA um, operating room safety and all of that from anybody, from any source. And there are some really good online sources to get that. But you can't let yourself believe that that's all you need because you are going to have to do some things that are specific to you, your people, and your center. You need to train your employees every year on your hospital transfer program. What hospitals do we use and and how do we go through that? And are your actual policy on a hospital transfer? It's beyond just telling them what it is. They all know what it is. They need to know what the steps are that were written specifically for you. You have to go through programs. Some of, um, like you have really well, if you're one of our clients, you have really well written um, programs, your cooperative program, your infection control program. Um, 
And your people need to know exactly one that it's in place and what you expect to be done, what your expectations are, what's been written in that program for you. Um, and no place online is gonna be able to do that. You're still gonna need that stuff that's done specifically for you. Um, and although you can get, you know, the, I, I don't wanna use the word generic either, but I can't for the life of me come up with a better word. Um, you know, that PPE, that HIPAA, all that stuff that we learn every year and could probably, each of your people could probably teach it as well as I could. Um, you can get that from anywhere, although I suggest you get it from us, you know. Um, but remember that you need to bring some people in to help you with the education that, you know, someone that doesn't know you, doesn't know your people, doesn't know your center, isn't going to be able to do and certainly not be able to do well. Um, John and I have been working, you know, during the craziness, is how I refer to it now, um, to get some of that stuff um, online, recorded, that can be used over and over again. And if you are one of our clients, we can make that available to you. And we can also make available some things that are a little more specific, you know, a little more engaged for you. Now, please don't get me wrong. I really want to get in my car, drive to your center and talk to you because I'm losing my mind. <laughs> and I want to come in and do that. Um, well, and you want to get away from your children, too. I mean, I'm assuming that's well, happening. Seem, yeah, <laughs> I enjoy them most of the hours of the day. Um, but I do want to let you know that we're working really hard to try to give you resources that you can use. Um, and if you aren't one of our clients yet and still want, you know, to have these, these resources available, we're going to work as hard as we can um, to give you a good product that you can use, not just now for craziness, um, but for, for going forward. So, so this is what we're up to is that uh, Judy and I, uh, actually Judy, uh, is working on putting together um, this. Uh, the, With really good guidance. That's right. <laughs> so we're putting together that generic uh, educational program. We're hoping to, uh, hopefully by tomorrow morning, we'll make a decision as to when we're going to do this. And we're going to record it live uh, just because it's nice to have a live audience uh, when we're doing it. We know that we won't have a lot of people probably that are going to be able to avail themselves of that. Um, and it will be free for AHS uh, uh, people, of course, and uh, you know we'll make it available for uh, non-AHS. And then uh, more importantly is that we'll also record this so that this will be available uh, for you to be able to do this. So this would be a really good way, even if your mandatory education isn't due until, say, September, October, it's probably not a bad idea to just do it now during this downtime. We always know how difficult it is to set aside time in our our day to do all this uh, this education. So let's get it out of the way. Then you don't have to worry about it until May of next year. Um, and, you know, by us recording these things too and making these things available to you in a recorded format, it's going to make it a lot easier on orientation and, and uh, you know, for people that are going to miss. I mean, inevitably, not everybody's going to be able to go through that mandatory education uh, during this time frame. So, um, so take advantage of this time to kind of get caught up on your an annual mandatory educational programs, both the, the generic part, shall we say, and that, that is specific to your organization. And again, hey, can we offer a contest or like there's a prize if you can come up with a word? <laughs> that's right. You know, that does that isn't generic. Universal. I, like universal. I said universal and you guys didn't like that. Oh, uh, well, maybe we'll have somebody vote. Is the people vote on it? How's that? Okay, thanks. That would be helpful. <laughs> and then, uh, and of course, uh, we, we recognize that a lot of our audience, over 250 people, 
on each episode here. Uh, of course, they're not all our clients, so uh, and many of you do have. I, I know many of you actually do these programs yourself. Uh, so this is a good time. A good. Uh, so think about how really not difficult it is to record something. If you have an iPad or if you have an iPhone, um, you can record this training session. So if you're doing it yourself in house. Just have somebody sit down with, uh, you know, put your camera on a tripod or, for heaven's sake, I guess you could hold it for that whole, you know, three hours, uh, whatever you need to do uh, in order to record it. And that way you'll have that recording available that you can give to everybody uh, that, that is not able to attend it at that time. So just a, a quick little piece of advice there. And, of course, reach out to your, your uh, regulatory consultants if you have somebody other than AHS uh, to, uh, to kind of push them a little bit into uh, getting this done during this time. This is a really good time to get caught up on that. So thank you, Judy. Any other comments about education during that? Any other thoughts on uh, education? Any questions? Our audience has been very quiet today. Have you noticed that? Thankfully, that doesn't happen during our uh, our conferences. I think people are tired. I think that's what's happening now. I, I don't even, I, I can't blame everyone for just getting fatigued. Um, Lori, uh, the other thing that we're working on right now is... We know when we bring people back to start doing even elective procedures, again, this is not – we hate using this term, but there is a new normal uh, that we're going to have to deal with as we move forward, um, at least for – I mean, I have no idea how long this is going to go. And and we're going to have to demonstrate to surveyors – we're going to have to – and not only do we – need to do this because surveyors are going to be looking. We have to do it because it's the right thing to do. We need to do some uh, in-service training for our staff so that they know what, what is different now uh, as we uh, move forward with uh, uh, elective procedures. Can you talk a little bit about some of the work that you're, you're uh, engaged in right now on that end? No, because I'm so tired. <laughs> uh, but what all of you out there will be probably focusing on um, whether it's, you know, internally yourselves or through others, um, you're going to want to be able to show that you've, um, re-educated your staff when it comes to their daily work. You, you have to re, you want to re-educate them on the, uh, the PPE because now there's staff that are using it probably that haven't before. Every one of your staff are masked. Not everybody has ever really put a mask on before. Um, your staff in your pre and post op aren't used to wearing masks. Your front desk staff definitely aren't. So you're going to want to go over that. You, you might be having your PACU staff wear a gown, um, depending on the type of procedures, the patients that are coming out. If they were aerosol generating procedures, then you want to protect those people. The, um, the, your staff in pre-op, though, probably won't be wearing gowns because they're not hopefully in contact with anyone that is going to um, contaminate, contaminate them in that way. But, but that's just an example. Same thing with your physicians and, and making sure that everyone's taking it off correctly or that you're doing it in teams so someone can um, help uh, someone else remove the, the back ties and, and stuff if they have, you know, if you have staff that are limited. You know, some of us can't get our arms back there and, and whatnot. So there's that. You're going to talk about hand washing. You're going to really um, re-educate everyone on the importance of hand washing, the when to do hand washing, uh, the when to do the alcohol-based products, 
Um, also to make sure that your um, alcohol-based products is a minimum of 60% alcohol, things like that. You're gonna re, um, revisit um, your environmental cleaning, such as your frequently touched surfaces and how often you're gonna be washing them. And as we, we you know, mentioned last week, it's not just your overbed table or your handrails, it's also your doorknobs, your phones, your um, call buttons, things like that. So there's a lot of things that you, you might not have even thought of before. Um, your pre-op and PACU area, are there areas that you're gonna be cleaning after every single patient that perhaps you didn't before, like the, um, behind the bed, if, the, if you have shelving behind the bed, are you gonna be cleaning that more often? Are you even gonna have supplies there? Um, how about in your OR and your procedure rooms? Um, you're going, any uh, cabinets that you normally wouldn't clean all the handles on after every single procedure, you're probably gonna start doing that now. Um, you know, because number one, it's not a bad practice. You know, maybe we should have been doing that in January, but now come, May, we, we will be doing. So it's stuff like that and, you know, and re-educating re our instrument processing people um, on, you know, the, the correct uh, usage of their PPE and that they are transporting the instruments appropriately from the um, procedural OR to, to their room. You know, so there's a lot of things out there that, um, if a surveyor comes in and starts giving you the um, one whatever over your um, infection control um, regime and what you have done since the pandemic, they're going to want to see that. So they're going to want to, uh, you know, um, you're going to have uh, attendee sheets and, and what you've discussed and, and, and what you went over and who attended and, and then also who didn't attend that you're going to find them and make sure that they are instructed because if if um, John comes in and asks um, Sally May in PACU, oh, did you receive receive training on putting on that gown and those um, that mask? And she says no, busted. Mm -hmm. um, you know, will they ask that? I don't know, but you know, anyone out there listening, they might. Um, so it's just it's just stuff like that, and it's just good safe practice, right. and that's what it's all about. And make sure that as you're doing this education, that it's not just the staff, uh, sorry, but it's got to be the physicians too. They have to go through uh, some of this training. I know that's going to be tough, but uh, they need to understand what is going into uh, this new world, shall we say, uh, mm -hmm. and, and how things are going to be different and how they're going to have to, to react differently in between procedures. And and I, I, I have to say this again, it, when it comes to infection control, we all know that over time we have put up with practices that have been less than ideal. I mean, uh, I, <clears throat> I know so many of our, our clients over time, you know, they haven't really taken um, it, the flu vaccine seriously, you know, and, and pushed uh, their employees to, uh, uh, to have the flu vaccine. Um, so I think it's, uh, this now is a, a really good time to, uh, to fix any of those practices that have been less than uh, ideal in the past. And the other thing too, is you may find now, and I, I'm not picking on them, but you know, your anesthesia providers are probably the most sensitive at this time regarding um, what they need to do to keep themselves safe mm -hmm. um, because of this disease being an airborne and droplet 
uh, transmitted um, virus. So they're the ones that are right at the, uh, the highest point of contact at all times. I'm not saying that they're gonna be more um, diligent with their safe medication practices, but they will definitely be more diligent when it comes to probably hand hygiene, um, wearing proper attire and all of that. So, you know, there, you might have some really um, great resources um, to have as champions now for your infection control program as well. Go ahead, Ann. Um, Laura, you brought something up about people are going to be wearing masks who don't normally wear masks. And as an OR nurse, you know, we always couldn't wait to get our mask off in the OR. But imagine being in pre-op and PACU where you're not used to wearing a mask. You're, and I'm, I'm, I'm seeing this in the stores. I hardly go out. But when I do, people are reaching up and adjusting their masks. And they're, you know, they're telling you to keep your hands away from your face. But our staff, even if they're clinical, they're going to be doing the same on body to them. It's something they're not used to doing. Yep. It's and, hard not um, to touch your face when you're wearing one of those masks. Isn't it, Jenna? I I mean, I had one on today. I had to go out and I was con because it, it wasn't comfortable for me. It wasn't yep. a surgical mask and it wasn't comfortable. And I kept wanting to slide around and it made me miserable. And I'm used to masks. So yep. I wanted to point that out because that's true. You're, look at your front desk staff. They, they don't ever wear a mask. And... Haven't helped. I mean, that's going to take a big adjustment. They're going to say, I've been wearing them out in public. 